This morning, we're, we're wrapping up this series by talking about, as Richard said, Jesus encountering the woman at the well. And I've got to say, I've been really, really struggling with this story this week. And over the last few weeks, in fact, the last couple of months, as I knew we were preparing to get to John chapter 4, I've got to confess, I think that I have misread this story for a long time. And I think I've not only misunderstood the conversation that Jesus and this woman were having and its implications for our life and our worship, I think I've misunderstood that conversation, but I think I've given the Samaritan woman a bad rap. And I think a lot of us have. I think a lot of commentaries have given her a bad rap. We'll talk about that in just a second. But we have to sort of understand and set the stage between the fact that here you have a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. And most of us probably know that Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. We're not really sure why. We just know that there was some some conflict there. And so we have to understand that. If, If you read a story, for instance, if you read a story set in like 1950s, Alabama or something, right? 1950s Alabama, and it was about a white man and an African-American woman. I I wouldn't really have to fill you in on any of the details. You probably understand the cultural situation that that would be encroaching upon, the, the, the taboos and the assumptions that someone would have to navigate in a situation like that. You could feel the tension if you were just reading a story about Those types of people, right? In that type of situation, in that type of setting. But this story takes place 2,000 years ago with two ethnic groups that we're really not that familiar with. So why is it that the Samaritans and the Jewish people had a hard time getting along? Why is it that, as John puts it, Jews had no association or didn't have anything to do with Samaritans? Why, Why is that? Well, Samaria, the city of Samaria and the surrounding region was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember the the kingdom of Israel was split into two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And, And the Assyrians, about 700 years before Jesus ever came along, the Assyrians came along and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they carried a lot, carried off a lot of the Israelites as captives to other places. And then they resettled This is kind of hard for us to imagine, but imagine they resettled Israel, the Assyrians did, with people from other captive nations and and people groups. So imagine, I was trying to think, how could we sort of picture what that would be like? Imagine if, if Germany had won World War II and had conquered the United States and had taken a bunch of American citizens off to other countries and then resettled people from France and Poland and other places here in the United States. That, that's exactly what happened in Israel. And so a lot of Israelites were taken off, and other Gentiles from other nations were resettled, forcibly resettled in Israel. And of course, a lot of the Israelites that were still there, descendants of Abraham, part of God's people, they they married these people that resettled in their land, and they had children and all of that. Well, eventually, the southern kingdom of Judah, they were taken off into captivity to Babylon, you remember? And then everything sort of gets tries to get back to normal, and a lot of Israelites start coming back to Jerusalem. And when they did, they discovered these Israelites that had intermarried with with Gentile nations, and they they passed segregation policies that said, we're going to have nothing to do with you people. Okay, And then the Samaritans, the people in that region of Samaria, they, they sort of had their own religion, not like foreign to 
the Abrahamic religion, uh, foreign to Israelite religion. They had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't accept any of the rest of the Jewish scriptures as scriptures, but they had that. And and they, they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. They believed that Mount Gerizim was the place where Abraham had taken Isaac to sacrifice him. They believed that Mount Gerizim was the the holy place. And so there you go. There's a picture of modern day Mount Gerizim. Samaritans still believe that this is the holy mountain. In fact, they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And about 128 years before Jesus was born, the Jews went to Mount Gerizim and destroyed the Samaritan temple. Okay? So can you kind of picture what that would be like? I mean, the Jews looked at the Samaritans and said, you've been compromised racially, culturally, religiously. You've been compromised. You're a compromised people. You worship on Mount Gerizim. You built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's wrong. That's not what we were told to do. And so you're wrong. But the Samaritans sort of felt the same way about the Jews. They felt like they were the the compromised ones. They felt like their temple was a compromised worship. They felt like everything going on in Jerusalem was corrupt and wrong. The the Jews felt like they were the faithful remnant of Abraham. And the Samaritans felt like they were the faithful remnant of Abraham. They felt like they were the faithful ones of God. In fact, if you had come along a Jew and a Samaritan in the first century, let's just say you've gotten a time machine and went back in time and, and you... I don't know if there are such things, but you know, just imagine. So you go back in, in time and you, and you're standing there and you see two, two people, one a Jew, one a Samaritan. You would, you would probably not be able to tell the difference, right? To us, when we're reading this story, we, we seem like that there would be these huge distinct differences, but it would kind of be like, you know, in Islam, there are the Shia and Sunni Muslims. And to us as outsiders, we, we really don't know what the difference is. It just seems like they're all Muslim, but to them, they understand the rivalry. They understand the conflict. And, and that would be the same this way. So to us, we might look at it and we'd see both, you know, sort of both Israelites, because they were. They were both descendants of Abraham. But there was a very real conflict. And most of the conflict revolved around who's right? Is Jerusalem the center of worship or is Mount Gerizim the center of worship? So it's with that in mind that, that we read this story. So John chapter 4. And verse 5, so Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Now, again, I mean, so these are, these are descendants of Abraham, right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob had one plot of land, one plot of land in the promised land that was his, and he gave it to Joseph. And that's where, that's where this is, is taking place. In fact, Joseph had his bones. You remember in Egypt, he had his bones taken back. 400 years later, they saved Joseph's bones and brought them back to the promised land and buried them, buried them there. I, I assume in anticipation of the resurrection. So Joseph's bones were brought back there. This is the place that Jacob had given to Joseph. So this, these stories are so incredibly intertwined, and sometimes we don't, uh, we fail to recognize that. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's about noon. Now, a lot of times we read this story, and, and almost every time I've heard it read, people have made the assumption that this woman is coming to the well at noon, 
because she's a shamed woman. Nobody wants to be around her. She doesn't want to be around anybody else. So she's coming to the, the, the well at a time nobody else would come because it's really hot. I wonder, how do we know what the temperature was that day? I, I don't know, right? Uh, how do you know how hot it was that day? And whether or not she had other things going on, maybe the people in her house use a lot of water. I, I don't know. We're, we're making, what I want us to see is we're making a huge assumption. Huge. And when we start reading this conversation with that assumption in mind, that she's so ashamed she can't come to the well because nobody else wants to hang out with her and she's an outcast, nobody would ever want to be her friend, nobody would ever want to be around her. I think we're starting with an inference that the text doesn't necessarily imply. In fact, I think it's better if we read this story in contrast to the one we just read. Do you remember in John chapter 3? In John chapter 3, you have a man, and in this story you have a woman, In that story, you had a Jew. In this story, you have a Samaritan. In that story, you have somebody who comes to Jesus in the dark. And in this story, you have somebody who comes to Jesus in the light. I think with that in mind, it's a little bit better to understand this story. Here's somebody who John might be implying... I guess he could be applying that she was ashamed and that, you know, all of the things we've always assumed. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the case. Or maybe he's helping us to see that Nicodemus was sort of a person that was in the dark. Because do you remember the conversation that Jesus would have about people that love the light and people that love the darkness? And maybe now, by contrast, he's saying, here's a woman, and she's coming to Jesus in broad daylight, as opposed to the one who just came in the dark. Now, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews, and John kind of puts in parentheses, for for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And you understand sort of the conflict now. And you know that a Jew sees a Samaritan as a compromised person. This is someone who is unclean. They are compromised racially, culturally, religiously. They worship in the wrong place. They believe the wrong things. They don't accept what we accept. They don't believe what we believe. We don't want to have anything to do with them. So why would a Jewish person ask for a drink from a Samaritan woman's jar? Right? So she's asking, what sort of Jew are you? What sort of Jew are you that would drink from my jar? She understands the the situation. She understands the taboo. She understands the wall, the cultural wall that exists between them. She understands that he's reaching across that wall. Now, maybe she's suspicious. Why is a guy, a Jewish guy, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? What sort of Jew is this? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you you saying you're greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and his sons and his livestock. Now, Again, we're supposed to be reading this story. See, when we, we break it up into weeks, you know, for a sermon series like this, you know, it, it, we break it up too much because, because we're supposed to be reading it in light of 
in light of what we just read in John chapter 3. And do you remember how that conversation went? And Jesus says, hey, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus thinks he's talking about like just natural birth. And he's like, well, how does that work? If somebody's old, how can they be born again? And, And Jesus says, listen, if you had known who I was, you could have asked me and I would have given you the gift of God, which is living water. And she's like, I don't see anything you're going to draw from. What source of water are you talking about, right? So she's thinking sort of a natural spring of water or something like that. So again, we're comparing these two stories. Nicodemus. And what sort of man was Nicodemus? And what sort of conversation did they have? What sort of woman is this woman? And what sort of conversation are they having? Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we got to stop right here for just a second. What exactly is Jesus talking about? I'm going to give somebody living water like, like that gives life and that they'll never be thirsty again. What, what sort of water is that? What is Jesus implying? What's, what's his meaning here? And there's all sorts of passages that we could go to in the Old Testament. But I think one of the best things that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying is Ezekiel chapter 47. See, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees a vision of a temple. I think we got a picture of that. So, so here's sort of an artist's rendering of Ezekiel's temple that Ezekiel sees in a vision. And it wasn't the temple that was destroyed. And in fact, it wasn't even the temple that was rebuilt after the people went back to Jerusalem. It's a different temple. It's a vision temple. And the cool thing about this temple, you can kind of see the river of life that's running out of the temple. And it runs, in, in Ezekiel's vision, it runs out of the temple and it runs all over the world. And everywhere it goes... It brings life. Everything it touches, it brings life to. So Ezekiel is seeing a vision that someday there will come a temple. And out of this temple, out of the heart of this temple, will flow a river of life. And everywhere it goes, it will bring life to everyone and everything it touches. Does John's gospel account have anything to do with temples? Yes, Does the conversation, whether it has even gotten there or not, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman have anything to do with temples? Yes. Gerizim, Jerusalem. And in John's gospel account, who is the, notice I didn't say what, who is the temple? Jesus, right? We've talked about that multiple times. John said, when Jesus says the temple will be destroyed and it be rebuilt in three days, he was talking about the temple of his body. When when Jesus said that the angels of God will ascend and descend on the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the house of God. John says, when the word became flesh, it tabernacled with us, right? Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the house of God. Jesus is the temple. Now I think Jesus is relating himself to Ezekiel's temple, to say, from me is going to flow this river of life. And everywhere it goes, it's going to bring life to everyone that it touches. If you had asked me, I would have given you this water. And I think another passage that we have to consider if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying is from John chapter 7. Again, if we were sitting here reading the whole book of John, John 7 and verse 37 
Jesus is about to say this a couple chapters later. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John helps us to understand, right? Now, this he said about the what? The Spirit. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what is it that Jesus is saying to this woman? If we take everything that this gospel account is going to tell us, it's that Jesus is the temple. He is the Holy One of God. He is the holy place. This whole conflict between Samaritans, Mount Gerizim, and Jews, Jerusalem, Which temple, which holy place, which one is really consecrated, which one is where I can meet God, where can I experience God, where can I come in touch with God, where do I go to serve and worship God, Gerizim, Jerusalem. And they hated each other over this conflict. And John's gospel account is saying, which one? Jesus. Jesus is the holy one. And out of Jesus is going to flow a river of living water. And everywhere it goes, and everyone it touches, it's going to bring life. And then John tells us that that living water is who? The Spirit, right? The Spirit is that living water that Jesus gives. So he's telling this woman, listen, if you knew who I was, I would give you the Spirit that is this living water that could come to you and bring you life, and you would never be thirsty again. That's what Jesus is offering. Now, look at verse 15. What's her response? No thanks, I'm good. I got a good well right here. Is that what she says? No, she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, she's still thinking, I mean, there's some sort of water source somewhere that this guy knows about, but whatever it is, I want it. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. Now, here's where it gets... Interesting. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, we've made a lot of inferences about this from from what Jesus says. And maybe we've been right to do so. Maybe, maybe this was an incredibly immoral woman. And maybe she cheated on five different guys and they all divorced her and now she's shacked up with some sixth guy. Maybe, maybe that's the case. But isn't it interesting that we've inferred that? Jesus doesn't say anything about her sinning, does he? It's not like the story in John chapter 8, which we'll talk about later, where Jesus says, go and sin no more. He doesn't say that to this woman. We're the ones that have implied, we're the ones that have inferred that this woman was somehow so immoral that nobody would want to be around her. Isn't it interesting that we do that? Isn't it interesting that historically we've done that with women? That we've assumed it must have been her fault. She must be the wicked one. She must be the bad one. She must have done something bad. She must be sinful. We've inferred that from this text, even though the text doesn't actually say anything of the sort. Isn't it interesting in John chapter 8 even, 
When the woman is brought to Jesus to condemn her because of her adultery, and we've often rightly asked, where's the guy? This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Well, where's he? And here's a woman who's been divorced or whatever five times. She's had five husbands, and now she has a sixth husband. And we've, we've assumed for 2,000 years, well, yeah, she must have been a wicked woman. How do you know that? Maybe she's been the victim here. It doesn't say that, but it doesn't, doesn't say otherwise. In fact, when we know about the culture and the time, and we know how divorce usually worked in the ancient world, it wasn't a woman who initiated the divorce. And if someone had really cheated on their husband five times or different men five times and then been remarried and then the sixth guy, she probably would have been stoned, not remarried five times. What if this woman had been a victim over and over and over and over again, treated like a commodity for years? From one husband to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other. And I have no idea what the situation is with this sixth guy. Neither do you. We don't know. But the the point of what Jesus is saying is, I know you. It's it's not about whatever we would infer from the text. It's what Jesus is saying. I know. I know your situation. I know what you're saying. I know who you are. I see you. Because when the woman eventually runs back to town, she tells him, she doesn't say, he knows all my sins. She knows, he says, he knows everything about me. He knows everything I've ever done. He knows my story. He sees me. But I think the key word here is what you have said is true. Because a lot of what they're about to say and a lot of this conversation is about truth. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, now again, it's funny. We assume that she's like changing the subject. I've assumed that. She's changing the subject. Man, I'm uncomfortable. He's talking about my husband's and now I'm going to change the subject. Maybe, maybe that's what she's doing or maybe not. Maybe she's just absolutely, honestly, truly amazed You know things that there's no way you know that. There's no way you know that. So you must be a prophet. And isn't it interesting what she asks about? She says, our fathers worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Isn't that interesting? That when this conversation, she has the opportunity to meet a prophet of God who sees insights. She doesn't say, what are next week's lottery numbers going to be? You know, she, she doesn't ask any question like that. She, she says, I want to get to the heart of this conflict. Who's right? I have the chance to meet a prophet. And he's a Jewish prophet, so he ought to know Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, there's the heart of our conflict. That's the wall that stands between our people, all descendants of Abraham. And, and who's right? Are you right? It's Jerusalem. That's the holy place. That's where we ought to be. Or is it Mount Gerizim where my people say, this is the holy place. This is where we ought to be. I think the key to this whole story is, here is a woman who is seeking the truth. That's why I think John tells us that she was coming to Jesus in broad daylight because she was a woman who didn't hate the darkness but loved it. She wanted to know the truth. She wanted some answers. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, 
Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, this is a temple discussion. Where is the holy place? Where is the consecrated place? Where do I go to meet God? Where do I go to experience God? Where do I go to worship God? Is it Gerizim or Jerusalem? Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus' answer, verse 21, is neither, right? It's neither Gerizim nor Jerusalem. And it's not to say that the the Samaritans are right and the Jews were wrong. In fact, salvation is from the Jews. But to say the hour is coming when it's not going to be Gerizim and it's not going to be Jerusalem, it's going to be worshiping the Father in the temple of spirit and truth. And he says, and I think this is important, he says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What kind of people? True worshipers. True worshipers. The Father is seeking true worshipers to worship him. And I think, again, if we're following this conversation, I think he's saying to her, you're such a person. I see you. And I know you. And what you speak is the truth. When I asked you about your husband, you told me truth. God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about Gerizim. It's not about Jerusalem. It's not about one of these temples because as John is revealing to us slowly but surely, Jesus is the temple, the place from which the spirit of God like living water is going to flow out to all the world. Now, again, let's pay attention to this phrase. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, a good question, a logical question would be, what spirit? There's lots of spirits, right? The spirit can mean lots of things. When he says, the true worshipers worship in spirit, what spirit is that? And we've kind of assumed over the years, at least I've assumed over the years, that that meant like the right attitude, like passionate, right? Worship passionately and zealously and worship with your heart. I don't know. Maybe, but as you read through the book of John, never does spirit mean that in the book of John. It never means that. In fact, the conversation that they're having right then is talking about spirit, isn't it? This living water that's going to flow out and bring life. In fact, the conversation that Jesus just finished with Nicodemus was about spirit, wasn't it? about how the Spirit of God is causing people to be reborn so that they can see the kingdom of God and enter into the kingdom of God. So what spirit is it that Jesus is saying, soon you're not going to worship in the temple of Gerizim, you're not going to worship in the temple of Jerusalem, you're going to worship in the temple of spirit and truth. What spirit is that? Well, I think from the context, the only spirit it can be is God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. In fact, I love the way the NIV translates it. It says this, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the Good News translation, I love this. It says, God is spirit, and only by the power of his spirit can people worship him as he really is. And there's the idea of the truth. What's true? What's real? What's genuine? And as you go through the book of As you go through the book of John, you want to talk about truth. Who is the truth? Jesus says, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And isn't this interesting how Jesus is bringing people together, Jews and Samaritans, Jews and Gentiles, by saying true worshipers aren't the ones at Gerizim, and they're not the ones fighting over Gerizim, and true worshipers aren't the ones fighting over Jerusalem, and true worshipers aren't the ones that fighting whatever. True worshipers are those who come to the true, real temple, which is Jesus, from which this living water will flow out, the Spirit of God, and bring life to everyone it touches. And in that spirit and in that truth, we will worship the Father. And that's the sort of worshipers the Father is seeking. And think about the contrast, too, between those like Nicodemus. Now, I think Nicodemus eventually comes around. But think about people like Nicodemus, like the Pharisees. And they appeared to be true worshipers, right? They, they, they had the, the appearance of worshipers. In fact, they would look down their noses at Samaritans and say, you're not true worshipers. But Jesus is saying, anyone who comes to the true temple, who receives this living water, can worship in the temple of spirit and truth. I love what Paul says, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision, not the, not the Jews that are physically circumcised, but we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our temple is the temple of spirit and truth. That's what Jesus is saying, isn't it? True worshipers are those whose temple, whose, whose worship place is spirit and and truth. And when we receive through Jesus this living water, we never thirst again, and he empowers us and indwells us to worship him as he truly is. Now look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Now, I've always just read that as sort of dismissive, like, Okay, okay, okay. I don't know what you're talking about, but someday Messiah's going to come and Messiah's going to tell us all this stuff. Maybe, maybe that's what she means. Or maybe she's sort of hinting at what she's already begun to discover. Maybe she's saying, all of this sounds sort of like what I expect the Messiah to say. All the things you're saying and all the things you're revealing about breaking down the temple at Jerusalem and breaking down the worship place at Gerizim and bringing people together in spirit and truth, this sounds like the sort of thing the Messiah is going to reveal to us. And Jesus confirms that and says to her, I who speak to you am he. And of course, the woman runs to town and she tells people, could this be the Messiah? And Jesus, over the next two days, he reaps a harvest of true worshipers. And if we're following the conversation that John is having with us, these people are true worshipers. Why? Because they love the light. They love the truth. Even if the truth means I'm, I'm going to accept the fact that a Jew is my Messiah. I'm going to accept the fact that Gerizim is not my holy place. He is. Truth seekers accept the truth, whatever the truth may be. Truth seekers are willing to change whatever needs to be changed in order to accept the truth. 
And so this story ought to cause us to wrestle with some questions. Here's some, some questions we might be prompted to ask. Am I a person who loves the light? Am I the kind of person who comes to Jesus at night or in the middle of the day? Number two, am I a person who is seeking truth? Do I really want truth? Truth will turn your life upside down, church. It's really easy to go through life and just be religious. Nicodemus and everybody that he was friends with was religious. But truth will turn your life upside down. What this story is talking about is spirituality, real, true spirituality that can only be achieved through Jesus Christ, that he's the one who gives the spirit of God. And in that spirit and in the truth of who he is and who God is, we become true worshipers of him, but it changes everything. Am I a person who's really seeking truth? Am I a person, number three, who wants the truth no matter how it changes my life? Number four, am I a true worshiper? I keep thinking about Jesus' words when he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is saying, I'm right here. You're thirsty, I want to quench your thirst. You're seeking truth, I am the truth. You want God, I'll give him to you. He's right here. And some of us spend our whole life sitting right there with Jesus, in close contact, hearing people talk about Jesus, but we really haven't become true worshipers and let the truth really change us. So here's our moment of truth. She had a moment of truth and she responded well, so here's ours. Have you received the living water and really come alive so as to be a true worshiper in the temple of spirit and truth. Have you received the living water? Because a lot of us are still thirsty, aren't we? A lot of us are still thirsty. And we're trying to get our thirst quenched a lot of places and a lot of ways. But truth seekers come to Jesus and say, you have true spirituality. You have true living water. You are the truth. And in him we're filled up and we come alive and worship him in spirit and truth. If you're ready to drink from that well and you haven't, or maybe you've wandered away from the well of living water and it's time to come back home, we want to help you. We're all in this together. If we can help you, go pray with the shepherds after service. Or right now, come forward as we stand and sing the song.